0: Well, good morning. good morning. Well, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Ever thought about the how does God display his majesty? We've got this great sovereign God in control of all things. This God who we think as being a king who reigns over all things, somehow in control of all the universe, somehow in control of everything we can imagine. How does he display his majesty? I mean, I find myself growing up, I would go to the ocean where my mom lives and I'd get up early in the morning and we'd go out to the ocean and be there to watch the sunrise in the morning. It's like, wow. Now, that's the majesty of God. I took my family one time to the Rocky Mountains. And you get up there on the top and you're able to look around and say, wow, this is the majesty of God. And somehow we think with creation we can see the majesty of God. When I moved to North Dakota growing up in Washington, D.C., I could not believe when you got outside the city and there are no lights how many stars there really are. I mean, you get out there and it was so pitch black and you go, whew. Stars everywhere, and being that far north, you had the opportunity to watch the northern lights too. And somehow, that changing of the lights in the sky, especially in the winter time, from oranges and greens and blues and whites, and you felt like you almost touch them. And just this magnificent creation of God would be the display of God's majesty. But it's interesting the way David approaches his psalm. He doesn't say it's by creation that God displays His majesty. He says, God displays His majesty by the care, the creation, and the design of mankind. That somehow by God's care and creation and design of man and woman, that somehow by God doing that, it displays His majesty. That somehow looking at each person in this room the person sitting next to you, is a display of the majesty of God. I'm not sure we really believe that. I think we have a tendency to start thinking about with the fallenness of man, with the sin nature that we have, with the depravity that there is, that somehow we are not that vehicle that displays the majesty of God. That somehow, after the fall, that everything got crushed so low, that even though God created us, that there was something lost so great, that we don't display the majesty of God. That somehow, when you turn and look to the person on your right, you don't think they display the majesty of God. Look at people around the room, people you work with, and you say to yourself, I don't think they really display the majesty of God, because if it did, and if they do, there are great implications for how we live and what we do. David goes into this psalm and he starts off with this whole idea that God displays his majesty. He not only says it in verse 1, he gets all the way to the end of the psalm and he, he restates it one more time. That somehow sandwiched in between these two concepts of God displaying his majesty that we're supposed to find somehow in the middle, what it is that really works. So here's what he says, Psalm 1, I'm sorry, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your enemies to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Look at verse 9, how he closes it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In all the earth, we're going to see the majesty of God. Now take note, he calls him Lord, our Lord. He uses two different names for God here. He says, Lord, that personal name, Yahweh, that personal name of God, that covenant-keeping God. Then he uses Lord again, and in your text there, you may see it's capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase t, telling it's another Hebrew word, which is Adonai. He says he's coming at this point to recognize the God, the sovereign, the king of the world and the universe. The one who made all things is one that he wants to bring majesty to. How majestic is this name? It's a term that brings up this idea of majesty that he's one in control of things. He's one who's the king, the royal one to take control of all things. And as he does that, his name is to be majestic above all things. He identifies how this even plays out when he talks about the infants and the nursing children. Jesus actually quotes this in Matthew 21, when all of a sudden he finds himself in the temple after a great triumphal entry, and he's talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders there. He's identifying for them all the things that are going on, and he says of them, "Listen, even the babes, the nursing children will praise the Lord, identifying the fact that even from the children, there's a recognition of who God is, a sovereign God of the universe. And praise is worthy of his name. And then after he identifies that. After he wants us to understand that's what God's all about. How majestic is his name to be praised. He moves into us for us to understand how that takes place. In verse 3 he introduces us to the concept that he he cares for mankind. I'm using mankind here to cover all men and women. Everyone created. But as he does that, here's what he says, verse 3. David says, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you do have a thought of him and the son of man that you do care for him? David identifies he's going to consider the heavens, and he identifies the heavens. He's talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars. As he talks about the moon and the stars here, he identifies it's God by his finger, just by his finger controls the moon and the stars just by his finger. I mean, we spend a spacecraft, up, a spacecraft up to the moon and it lands. We can never see it. He wants to see that moon. God just takes his finger and can move the moon around. The stars in the sky and God can take a finger and just move them around. The whole universe, I and mean, it's just God's finger just moving things around. God reaches up in the sky and just moves the universe around. It's just by the finger of God he's put things into place. As we understand just the magnificent creation of God, he then shifts and raises the question, what is man? What is man? That you even take a thought of him. Interesting word for man here. It's not the normal word, Adam. It's a Hebrew word which comes out meaning the whole idea of something very common used of a stylus or a pen schools getting ready this week all the ads on television and everything go and buy your pencils and what's every kid buy a number 2 pencil with an eraser why it's just the common stylus it used to be the big pen you know that clear plastic one they used to have just cheap it worked just the most common pen you could buy not the gel pens not the sharpies not the permanent markers, not the colored ones, just that old, plain, crystal-clear, big, plain pen. So common and so cheap. That's the word used here for man. Just something common, just so common, something almost you wouldn't even think much about, you wouldn't give any attention to, and it says, but God, but God gives a thought to this man on this world, the God who moves the universe around with his finger now gives thoughts to the man on the earth. The words actually remember that God actually remembers us on this earth, not the way we remember. My son lives in Florida. He was just up here for my daughter's wedding. He went back there to work and all those things. And periodically in his life, things come up. And I remember my son, Jeff. And there's nothing I can do for him except pray. Parents understand this. Your kids move five minutes away from you. And all of a sudden, I can remember them. But I can't do anything for them. Because I don't have the power to do anything for them. But I can remember them. We send cards to friends, some remind them. We remember them on their birthday or their anniversary. We remember them. That's not what the word means here. This is the idea of somebody who can remember and not only know what's going on, can see what goes on, they actually then engage in resolving what they remember about us. It's the idea that things are going all around the world. And Yahweh pauses and remembers you. And then he sends help to meet the needs that we have. That's how he remembers and cares. It says in this verse that he actually cares for us. It's a word that means he pays attention, to observe, to interact. Jesus uses a military term. The idea to muster up troops. When all of a sudden there's a battle to take place and you want to see a victory, you muster up the troops, you get everybody together to come and bring victory to the event that takes place. And God looks upon mankind and he cares for us. And it remembers us to interact. He cares for us by mustering up troops to win a victory. He displays the majesty of God through his care for mankind. But there's a second part here. It's not just his care. It's also his creation. He actually created man in such a way to demonstrate it's God's majesty at work. Look at verse 5. That you have made him, that's man, a little lower than God, or if you have NIV, it says angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Now the reason there's different translations on that, the Hebrew is actually Elohim, which is name for God that is used. But its Elohim is also plural. It can mean plural gods, for example. So if you talk about pagan gods, it's pagans. It's like they believe in a lot of gods. When you get to Hebrew two, Hebrews 2, when it talks about Jesus Christ, in the New Testament it actually translates it as angels. The idea, I think, it comes off with the sense that man was created, and when the idea of created a little lower, it's the idea that there's something lacking in man. There's something lacking in mankind, something that's sort of taken away that makes us a little lower than God or the angels know things. There's a sense that God did not give us divinity. But he gave humanity the image of God. There's something that sets us apart from all of creation. Something that makes us greater, more valuable than the sun and the stars and the moon. Something far greater than creation. But something less than who God is. And God made us that way. And as he made us that way, he identifies. He made us in one way, a little less than God, and then he identifies this, that man was crowned with glory and honor. That's the real picture. You almost get the sense that God brings mankind up when he creates him and takes a crown of glory and honor and places it on his and her head. And also identifies this dominion that he expects us to have on this creation of his. That mankind is not just some dust created being, but mankind has been crowned by God Almighty with glory and honor that sets him apart from anything else in this creation. So when God created man, he made him just uniquely different than all of creation. When God created woman, he made her uniquely different than all of creation. And God demonstrates and displays his majesty by his care for mankind, by his creation of mankind, but thirdly, by his design for mankind. Look at verse 6 to 8. You have made him to rule over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds in the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Two things he says here now, how he's designed man. He's created him, one, by crowning him, making him a little less than the angels. But now he designs him for a purpose on this earth, that, that mankind has a purpose to live and to function. He says this, that he might rule over the works of your hands. God somehow understands that in our creation, these design man in some way to have dominion and overseeing the works of God's creation. He goes so far to say that he actually identifies that they're subject to his feet. Now David may never identify here through this whole thing. It's almost as though he doesn't even recognize the fall has even occurred until you start thinking through the application of this and you realize the earth does not subject itself to our feet. The creative order does not subject itself to our feet because after the fall there's a conflict that creates between man and the world we live in. There's an alienation between the world we live in and who we are and there's a conflict that occurs but there's a future anticipation for this to take place. That's why I think the author of Hebrews identifies us all with Jesus Christ. All this is true in the true man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all that God wanted in humanity, being true God and true man, and Christ does do all this. And we anticipate that in the future. Yet God wants us to understand what his design is for mankind. You need to think about this. David's writing this psalm to tell us that God displays his majesty by his care, his creation, and His design for mankind. David's also one when he was first being looked at to be a king. Samuel came to his father and asked him, "'Who are your sons?' And he brings all his sons before him." one after another, one after another, and they all go by. And Sam is aware somebody's missing. He asks his father, Jesse, Don't, any more sons? He says, I have one more. There's David. He's out in the field with the sheep. And God has to speak to Samuel and tells him this. That God does not look on the outward appearance. But the heart of the individual. And that's what's valuable and important. We live in a world today where we all believe the lies of the world. We don't look good enough. We don't have enough hair. We have too much weight. We just look bad. We get up in the morning, we look in that mirror and say, I can't believe this. And this psalm is written to go against the lies of this world to realize that God does not look at our outward appearance as we do. He learns at that inner quality of who we are. Here's the practical application of this. God displays his majesty by his care and creation and design of you. Think of that. God displays His majesty by His creation, His design, and His care of you. Just for who you are. It's not like He gets up and looks in the mirror and says, I can't believe that's one of mine. He doesn't look on our outward appearance, folks. That's not what impresses God. It's that he's designed, created, and cares for us. And it displays his majesty of who we are. For some, we've heard words about ourselves for years. For some of you have grown up in homes, unfortunately, where your parents called you names. Where people made fun of you. Your friends laughed at you. Where you get all caught up in this self-esteem, self-worth, and all that stuff. I'm not even talking about that, but you know what I'm talking about. Where your spirit is crushed. that your sense there is no value or worth in yourself. And you need to know what David is saying here. The king of Israel, who knew his father didn't he want him to pass by Samuel... To know that he could possibly be the next king. Kept him out in the field. But comes to understand. That God demonstrates and displays his majesty. By his care. His creation. And display of design of you. But there's a second one here that's important. God also demonstrates and displays his majesty. And his care. And it's creation for your spouse. Being married, we can oftentimes get very critical of our spouse. Years can go by and we focus more and more on their weaknesses and not their strengths. We become more critical of what they can't do. Instead of recording and remembering what they can do. And men, I think, are worse of this. Husbands who I've heard critical of their wives. Sad to hear of men who verbally critique their wives, who control their wives in such a way that they do not allow them to enjoy life. They forbid them to spend money. They speak ill of them and hold them down verbally. And God forbid they somehow should raise a hand towards their spouse, and physically touch them. Yet somehow men do this. 1 Peter 3, 7 tells men, husbands in particular, that if we do not treat our wives as fellow heirs of grace, our prayers are not answered. Gentlemen, we can come in here on a Sunday and we can look really good to one another. We can stand next to our wife and look really good as a husband. We can create the impression, the illusion that things are good and right at home. And every time we pray, our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and they are never answered. We cannot figure out what's wrong in our home because we are not treating our wives as fellow heirs of grace. I need to understand, men, that God displays His majesty... By his care, his creation, and his design of your wife and for the wives of your husband, even when he fails as a spiritual leader in your home. But God also wants to understand that God displays his care, his creation, his majesty by the care and design and creation of your children somehow as parents we come along the way that we can extend grace to everybody's kid except ours how we can sit with a young person who going through some really difficult times making some really wrong and foolish decisions And we can actually put our arm around them and comfort them and encourage them, tell them God's going to work, God can do great things. We express forgiveness and grace and care. But not our own kids. All the names we can call our own kids. Oh, we call it jest. But somehow using terms of stupid and idiot somehow referring to a child that was not anticipated in your plan and design as a mistake dismisses the fact that children are a gift of the Lord. How can a mistake be a gift? How do we turn a gift into a mistake? And as parents, we need to look upon our children and realize this passage is telling us That God's displaying His majesty. So those bumps in the road, those hiccups they have, those messes they make, all that takes place with my kids, the creative order of God. And in that, they display the majesty of God. And I, as a parent, need to recognize that. Ephesians 6 tells us as parents that we should not provoke our children to anger. I'm responsible in some way. And somehow as parents we lose sight of this passage. We lose sight of the fact that God displays his majesty through the care, the creation, the design of our own children. When we come to the life of the church, though, we need to understand another one. God displays his majesty through the care, the creation, and the design of of the poor. Uh, when he writes to, in the book of James, it's just interesting how James writes to the rich and the poor. We have a tendency to raise up the rich in the church. We, we, we elevate them in such a way that we even think they should be leaders in the church, implying that somehow, if they're profitable in life, if somehow they're leaders in work, if somehow they're leaders in their business, somehow they own their own business, or something that qualifies them. You get to James chapter 5 and he talks to the rich. He says nothing good about them. You get to James chapter 2 and he talks about they oppress the poor. It's the rich that do it. And it's somehow in the life of the church that we can show personal favoritism in such a way that we raise up the rich and we put down the poor. What happened in the book of James was this. They had, came to the worshiping area, and they had... If you grew up in a liturgical church, Catholic or Lutheran, you remember kneeling, the kneelers they had? Well, Apparently, when they built the synagogues, they put foot rests. So the idea when you sat down, you didn't have to put your feet all the way on the ground. There's a little step you rested your feet on. And if you grew up in that liturgical background, you know what I mean? You'd put the kneeler down. Your folks were not happy with you. And you'd rest your feet on on those kneelers. And what the ushers did was they invited the people in to sit and they they gave all the rich people the pews and they come to that poor person and say, "Uh, you can sit right here on the kneeler. You can sit down here where nobody can see you. So when you look across the congregation, what did you see? All the rich people. Why? Because all the poor people were sitting down here. He says, look, you made personal distinctions. You made personal favorites in the life of the church. You cannot do that with the poor. Sometimes I wonder if it really isn't racism that we struggle with. Because racism often seems to center on those who are the poorest or the ones we treat the worst. And somehow that economic issue has real impact. It should touch our hearts and lives, the life of the church. We start thinking through how we display God's majesty by His care, by His creation, His design for the poor. Ah, But there's another group too. We need to pause at times and remember, God displays His majesty through the care, the creation, and the design. Of those who are physically challenged and mentally challenged. Look at Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4, Jesus Christ is given an account of his ministry. going to quote from the book of isaiah to describe who he is and what he's going to do it's his custom to enter the synagogue on the sabbath and he stood up to read and here's what he reads luke chapter 4 verse 17 it starts and the book of the prophet isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now he reads this to the scribes and Pharisees and everything, and then turn to chapter 7, because something interesting happens. John the Baptist has been jailed. He sends now two of his disciples to Jesus. His question to him, are you really the Messiah? Are you the really the sent one? And Jesus answers in an interesting way. He doesn't answer with "Yes, I am." He answers by going back to the same passage and sort of saying, "Look at the results that you see in my ministry and life. Look at the people I care for. Look at who I minister to. Look at what I do. Then you tell me who I am." So he does this in uh, verses, um, starting in verse eighteen. The disciples of John reported him all about these things, and summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And at the very time he cured, and catch this, at that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And he sa- answered and said to them, Go and report to John, Catch this, what you have seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. I'm just identifying here, when we start looking around the world, we look at our own congregation, look at our neighbors and our communities, It's understanding that God displays his majesty by the care, the creation, and the design of those who are physically and mentally challenged. You have to understand how this all works, folks. We live in a day where it's understood as people get older, age does have implications for this. When people who may get older, who have Alzheimer's, somehow don't remember things like they used to, does not mean they've lost the value to God of who they are. It's understand that when people have accidents, which somehow may cause them to lose the mental ability to do things or the physical ability to do things, they've not lost the value in God's eyes. We need to understand that as people that have health issues, which for some reason can cause those things to occur, whether through the medication or the need for something to be removed or the loss of limb is understanding that that doesn't lose the value of life. And for a nation who now speaks of our longest war ever, to realize the servicemen and women who come back, who through the somehow warfare have gone through times where mentally they are unable to think as clearly as they used to, with the loss of a hand or an arm or a leg, that we have young men and women who have given their life to serve our country, who have not lost the value of who they are. Because the psalm is reminding us, David wants us to understand that God displays His majesty by His care, His creation, design for those who are physically and mentally challenged. There's another group of people that he seems to be concerned about. Turn to Psalm 146. This is to understand that God displays His majesty through the care, the creation, design of... Uh, and what we use today is those at risk. Uh, we, we talk today about social justice, but, but it's the idea that there are oppressed people who things are pressed upon them, that it's beyond their control to do anything. And as believers, we somehow step back and say, well, what can we do? There's nothing to do. We just ignore the situation. Or do we understand uh, that these are people who God has designed and created and care for. And there's implications for what that means. When we start talking about those who are at risk. You can hear those in Somalia now and the starving and the starvation that takes place. Or we hear refugees coming from one country to another country because of not just starvation, but the massacre of life. When somehow you hear the stories today of trafficking where children and women are sold into sexual slavery and we hear about it and think it's over there, it takes place right here in the United States as well. As that trafficking takes place, it's a people at risk. When children are put at risk to do things they should not do, and all of a sudden they're oppressed into circumstances and situations of that kind. When we speak of the unborn, the sense of abortion that takes place, of the unborn at risk. That this psalm speaks to that issue, that when God looks upon mankind, he understands who we are, and it entails all of us. His majesty is displayed through so that care, uh, that creation, that design of those at risk. And finally, he wants us to understand that God displays his majesty through the care, the design, the creation of those who are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That somehow our hearts and our pocketbooks and our lives should be moved by those who have not been reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew closes off with, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. Ethnos. You get to Revelation 5. Great scene of the worship of Jesus Christ. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation folks God displays his majesty to the care the creation, the design of the unreached and we do not we cannot be a people that think that we can gather here enjoy the fellowship enjoy our worship and singing and praise of God hear the preaching of the word and say that is good we have a world out there that is lost, and unreached people that need the good news of Jesus Christ. And traveling to Haiti reminds us of all the needs that are there from those at risk to those who are unreached to the poor, a people who desperately need a Savior. I'm not sure where God wants to implant this in your heart today. But the truth, the truth is that God displays His majesty by His care, His creation, and His design for mankind. That's for you. That's for me. That's the person sitting next to you. Everyone in this room. And everyone out there. Because the psalm is telling us that that's what God must do. How does he conclude this one? Same way he started the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's close in prayer. Lord, what a wonderful truth to identify the intimacy that we can have with you, but it's because of the intimacy you have with us. That you're a God who remembers us and intervenes. That you're a God who cares for us and acts on our behalf. That you're a God who created us in the image of God. That you're a God who also then designed us to have impact in the world we live in. Lord, open our eyes that we can see your majesty displayed in one another. That for some, Lord, to see the majesty of God displayed in ourselves. That you've set us apart as unique in all creation. As your people, who can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have that eternal life. Give us eyes to see as you see hearts to respond to the world as it needs, and the ability to speak that good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.